Well, hear now the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 46. I will be reading uh, the whole chapter. Bel bows down. Nabu stoops. Their idols are beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes him into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is the word of our Lord. Now, most former seminarians and perhaps even current seminarians, for those of you who are in seminary for that matter, may have a lot of mixed feelings about their seminary education. The very word often brings to mind long hours of study and the rigor of exams and papers that need to be written. Yet there's a profound and genuine sense of growth because, uh, quite frankly, there's nothing more edifying for the Christian than spending these long hours of study in God's word. And because of that, I do look back fondly on the amount of the growth that the Lord was able to bring me through in my time of seminary with great thankfulness. However, perhaps the most profound and important thing uh, that I learned in seminary wasn't from a professor at all. Uh, but rather from a friend and a dear brother in Christ. Uh, this friend, uh, Daniel, after having sat under one of my theology classes from a long bygone era, uh, he said to me, unless you can explain this doctrine to a five-year-old, you have no business teaching it to a 55-year-old. Uh, this, of course, is a derivative of a phrase that is often attributed to Albert Einstein, although the jury is still out as to whether he actually said this. Uh, but most people who know me well would say that I love to explore the intricacies and the nuances of doctrine that we find in God's word. And yet the advice that my friend Daniel gave me rocked my world, so to speak. 
not in such a way that the nuances of systematics must be set aside, but in a way that places those things in their proper context for those who might listen to me. And this, of course, is the essence of what makes a good teacher. A good teacher has so mastered the material to be taught that they have the necessary dexterity, if you will, to explain the core premise of the material, regardless of whether their audience is a class of five-year-olds or a class of 55-year-olds. Uh, few teachers know both the substance of what is being taught and their audience well enough to accomplish this. But this is what sets a great teacher apart from good teachers. And while I personally strive to understand my audience well each time I teach, my own children perhaps strain and test me in this regard more than any others. Uh, for example, a few weeks ago, as my family and I were doing our family worship and our devotional time after dinner, uh, we were reading from Proverbs chapter 1, which contains the famous phrase from verse 7, uh, saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, this, of course, led to a natural discussion of what it means to fear the Lord. Uh, and when I did indeed ask my young children what this phrase means, I received a variety of answers from being terrified of God to offering worship to God or simply not knowing the answer to said question. Uh, with these questions and answers, though, my own mind began whirling a bit, and I couldn't come up with a way to explain this simply and clearly to my children. This is because, on the one hand, being afraid of God and fearing God as the scriptures it's found upon are not quite the same thing. Uh, for Moses says to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, quote, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be for you that you may not sin. So even from this simple phrase, may we rightly infer that the fear of the Lord is not the same thing as being terrified of the Lord, at least in the way that we typically understand fear. Uh, and that we are ultimately to fear the Lord for a purpose so that we may not sin. Uh, the fear of the Lord is intricately tied to the law of God for the people had just received the 10 commandments earlier in Exodus chapter 20. And yet there is also more to the fear of the Lord than the holiness that the law demands and our own inability to keep that law. Deeper than that, the fear of the Lord that the scriptures speak of is made manifest in the redemptive work of the gospel. In Psalm 130, uh, verse 4, the psalmist writes, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And as Michael Reeves wisely wrote, Quote, it is divine forgiveness and our justification by faith alone that turns our natural dread of God as sinners into the fearful, trembling adoration of beloved children. This fear of the Lord is what theologians call a filial fear, or a fear that a child should render to their parents with reverence and respect. The fear of the Lord is a fear that marvels at the fact that we are sinners before an absolutely perfect and holy God. And yet we are forgiven and we are loved in his grace. Godly fear manifests itself as an assurance and trust in the one who can save, not based on ourselves or our outward appearances, but rather on the basis of his promises uh, that are themselves rooted in the very unchanging, steadfast, and unwavering nature 
of God himself. And this leads us to our big idea this evening, namely to fear the God who can save as none other can. In many ways, the whole book of Isaiah reverberates with this theme, but our text in Isaiah 46 this evening starts with showing us the idols that cannot save in contrast to the living God who does save his people. And this is the first point of our sermon this evening, idols that cannot save. Secondly, we will turn to, uh, we will learn of the Lord, rather, who can save. And finally, and thirdly, we'll learn of the promise of the Lord's salvation. Now, as we turn to the text of Isaiah 46 this evening, it is important to keep several threads or themes from throughout the book in mind. This book was written prior to the fall of both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel to Assyria and the southern kingdom, excuse me, of Judah to Babylon. And the book serves ultimately as a prologue of these coming events as signs of covenant judgment upon God's people for their unfaithfulness. The book starts with summaries of the wickedness of God's people, which is sharply contrasted with the Lord's holiness, as we see in Isaiah's own calling in Isaiah chapter 6. And we see this along with prophetic announcements of God's righteous judgment, not only upon the wicked in Israel, but also upon all of the surrounding nations, even the nations that are yet to conquer both Israel and Judah. And then interwoven in these summaries of covenant unfaithfulness, wickedness, and the coming judgment upon God's people, we still see these glimpses of Yahweh's continued covenant faithfulness to his people, of his redemptive love and work of salvation among his chosen remnant. We see signs of this faithfulness on the Lord's part in the promised child who is to rule over the righteous remnant, who would be both a son of David and of God himself in chapter 9 of Isaiah. Or we see this in the voice of one who is crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord himself. Or in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and other examples throughout this book. We are told uh, a little bit more specifically in chapter 45 that the Lord grasps the hand of Cyrus, this Persian king, to subdue the nations, though he himself does not know the Lord. And we also see that the offspring of Israel will be justified only by the Lord by the end of chapter 45. And yet is within this greater context that Isaiah 46 is nestled. And immediately we observe in our passage where idols that cannot save are so sharply contrasted to the Lord who is absolutely sovereign over all things. In the first two verses we read, Bell bows down, Nero stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And here in this portion of our text, we immediately see that this glorious justification of the Lord's people in him stands in stark contrast to this procession that our text paints, a procession in which Bel and Nebu, the primary or the patron gods of the Babylonians, they are cast from their temples and pedestals of exaltation and themselves are thrust into exile. 
So far from safeguarding the mighty Babylonian empire and bearing the burdens of that great city, these idols are carried into captivity. Far from saving the Babylonians and bearing their burdens, these gods themselves are burdens upon man and weary beasts. The gods to whom multitudes bow down to are themselves bowed down. They cannot save. They cannot bear the burden. They themselves have been vanquished. But Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, could not be more different than this procession that the text initially paints. And in light of the glorious justification of the Lord's chosen remnant at the end of chapter 45, the Lord draws the attention of his people to this contrast at the beginning in verse 3. And in drawing this comparison, the Lord reveals something about himself to the remnant of the house of Israel. Whereas the idols of Babylon are themselves burden, not only on those who made them, but upon the beasts that carry them into exile, we learn that God's people have been born by him from before their birth that they have been carried from the womb to their old age. And in verse four, let us look to where he says, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. Now this, this phrase, I am he, that we see in our text is perhaps a little bit under-translated in our English versions. However, this phrase very emphatically and clearly highlights the unchanging nature of our God. And this is indeed the hinge, if you will, upon which the whole passage, the stipulations of God's covenant with his people, and even our very salvation turns. Because the same God who has carried us forth from the womb is the same one who will carry us, even to our old age. The same God that made us will bear us. He will carry us and save us, not because of anything within us or anything contingent upon ourselves or our outward circumstances, but purely on the basis of who he is. Our first breath and our final salvation both rest solely upon the Lord so that there is never a point in our lives that we are not utterly and completely dependent upon his care to carry and bear us up. And this is the revelation of the Lord's unchanging nature. And in this revelation, we can find assurance for his promises. His promise to bear us, carry us, and save us is as certain and assured as his making us and bringing us forth from the womb. And this is because in him, there is no shadow or variation due to change, as James 1.17 says. So as we consider this passage before us this evening in this dichotomy, if you will, between man-made idols that cannot bear or save as circumstances change, uh, let us also see Yahweh who promises to save based on his own unchanging nature. And while we do that, we must carefully consider and ask the question, who or what are we entrusting ourselves to? Do you trust that the Lord who made you will also carry you and save you even unto himself? Or do you find that the affections of your heart and your burdens are cast upon idols of your own making? 
Do you entrust your well-being and joy to a better-paying job, to the right political party, to a spouse, or even to your own children? Do you rely upon your own skill and cunning to deliver you from your present distress? Oh, how easily we succumb to entrusting ourselves to things that cannot bear our burdens and deliver us. Brothers and sisters, let us not look to the idols that cannot save as the wicked and the hopeless do. But yet the Lord doesn't simply leave things there with the simple revelation of his unchanging nature and promises. No, he expounds in the next several verses, not only on his promise to save, but in his ability and faithfulness to do what he promises. Here, the scriptures point and reveal to us a Lord who can save, which is the second point of our sermon. Having thus established that the Lord is the one who carries his people and his promises to bear and to save them, he also now asks us a question intended to draw a greater attention to God's nature that we see here in verse 5, where we read, To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Here in in this verse, we observe uh, the Lord emphasizing what we rightly call the incomprehensibility of God. That is to say that all of God's attributes are absolute and perfect, in their degree, and not merely greater relative to us. That is to say that God is not merely more holy than us. He is absolutely, utterly, and perfectly holy and righteous in all of his ways. And because God is infinitely perfect, it is not actually possible for for us as finite creatures to comprehend or to know him in his infinite and perfect fullness. Furthermore, as we have already seen that God doesn't change, uh, he nevertheless per, never, also never progresses from one degree of perfection to another. For if we say that God could change, he either would become more perfect, meaning he wasn't absolutely perfect before, or he would become something less than perfect and thus cease to be the true God that is revealed in the sacred scriptures. And yet, even knowing that, how often do we think of God as merely a superhero version of ourselves? A conception, if you will, of a friend who loves us and accepts us as we are no matter what. Sure, we would concede that God is greater than us, but often this greatness is seen as something relative rather than absolute. We think that God is more holy than us or more powerful than we are because we are finite creatures. We fail to grasp this absolute perfection of God's holiness and power. And ultimately, any conception of God that we uh, may have uh, that may be less than what he's revealed to us in his word necessarily becomes idolatrous. Those conceptions are something less than God if they are not faithful to the way he revealed himself. And so returning again to our text in verses six through seven, we read about one who willingly hands over gold and silver to a craftsman, a goldsmith who makes that money into a statue before which they fall down and pay reverence and worship. 
And yet this idol cannot even move itself to accomplish anything. The idol cannot bring itself into existence or have existence in of itself. The idol must be carried as a burden upon the shoulders of man and beast. If one cries to it, the idol cannot answer or save them from their troubles. The idol is necessarily inferior to the one who created it, to the one who crafted it. So while we ourselves cannot fully comprehend the Lord God in all of his perfections, he nevertheless truly condescends. He stoops down and reveals himself to us in his word, the sacred scriptures. And here the Lord is truly and emphatically telling us that there is nothing equal to him. Nothing could be aptly compared to the Lord. These idols that we craft for ourselves, either in our minds or as a literal statue, could not be farther away from a true and accurate reflection of who God is. Uh, to drive this point further home, this point that God doesn't change and that he is indeed incomprehensible, the Lord also makes yet another point about himself, namely that he is able to do what he purposes. In verses 8 through 11 we read, uh, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Again, the Lord reiterates in verse 9 that there is no other God besides Yahweh. And not only is there no other God, but there is none that can be adequately compared to him in any true or accurate sense. This is what the Lord is calling his people to remember and stand firm in, in an unwavering and steadfast conviction that we see in verse 8. But what does the Lord mean here when he says that there is none like him? In verse 10, we are told that he declares the end from the beginning that he not only foreknows, but he declares or ordains the ends from the very beginning. He brings about all things that come to pass, not because of the actions of his creatures, but rather in order to accomplish his counsel, his will, and his sovereign purposes. That is to say, he does not merely possess a perfect and passive foreknowledge of what will happen in the manner where one might reasonably sometimes and forecast what the weather might bring. No, but he possesses a perfect foreknowledge because he is able and he is willing to bring about all that comes to pass for his good purposes. Uh, this conversely is utterly unlike our inability to actually bring about changes in the weather according to our own whims and desires as much as we may have wanted the last few weeks to be a bit warmer. But to drive this point home, the Lord also draws prophetic attention in verse 11 to the way in which he calls the bird of prey from the east. This bird of prey who is the man of counsel from a far country. Uh, none other than Cyrus, this Persian king whose hand he's grasped to subdue the nations. 
And yet this is something that has yet to happen at the time that Isaiah wrote these words. But the Lord concludes verse 11 by saying, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Thus, this prophecy is not merely wishful thinking or even a prediction on God's part. Rather, he has willed, he has decreed, and he is able to bring about what he has spoken. This is as as assured as the fact that the Lord has borne us from the womb, because as we've already seen, God never changes. There is none like him, and he is able to bring about both calamities and salvation for his own glory. Now, one of the challenges, if you will, of parenting children is helping them to learn how to both recognize and manage their emotions. Uh, All children, regardless of their ages, uh, seem to go through these stages and phases for different emotions, be it joy, be it fear, be it anger, etc. But one common phase of emotion for younger children is being afraid. And this is definitely not something that's unique to any one of my children. They often seem driven by fear, be it fear of the dark or even fear of going to the basement without mom or dad present. Uh, But one evening as I was trying to tuck my youngest son Watson into bed, he wouldn't let me leave because he is scared of monsters. So I simply asked him, uh, even somewhat annoyed, if he thought that I would let monsters into our house to which he responded with a very emphatic, yes. (laughs) Uh, Probing then a little bit deeper, the reason for this answer is because he ultimately was not convinced that I could do what I said I would do. And such is often true of us, where even if we have the best possible motives and earnestly work to bring them about, uh, there remains a great many things beyond our control. So I could not actually keep the monsters of Watson's imagination from entering our house, as I said I would. However willing I may be, I am not able in the ultimate sense to prevent those imaginary monsters, and Watson understood that at the ripe old age of three. But yet, God could not be more different than this. He doesn't simply know what is likely to happen and take steps to accomplish or to prevent uh, such things. He is never in a situation where he is willing but unable to bring his will and his purposes to fruition. And as a consequence of this unchanging and perfect nature, God's promises are as assured as if they are already accomplished. Our text this evening has contrasted in the sharpest possible terms our idols that cannot save with the Lord who can save. And knowing and entrusting in this unshakable reality about God is essential as we come to the final point of our text and our sermon this evening, namely the promise of the Lord's salvation. Look with me again, if you will, at uh, verses 11 through 13 or excuse me, 12 through 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from my righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. We immediately find that the Lord's unchanging nature and ability to accomplish every purpose is essential 
to his promises at the end of this chapter. This is because such promises at first glance seem utterly impossible. God's people, they are stubborn of heart. God is holy and they are not. They are far from his righteousness and holiness, as our text says. The Lord has previously in this book pronounced his just wrath upon Israel and upon Judah. And this Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom is promised and even at the door as Isaiah is writing this. That all this to say that things look incredibly bleak for God's chosen people at this point in history. By all appearances, the covenant between God and his people has failed and is being rent asunder due to Israel's unfaithfulness. But God has not changed. He has purposed and he has spoken promises of salvation for his people. And not any of these unfolding events can prevent his purpose from being ultimately accomplished. Though God's people are not righteous, God's pro God also promises to bring his righteousness near. This righteousness is a salvation provided for God's people, not because of anything within them, but because God himself has purposed and ordained it. This is a righteousness that we hear is coming soon in the text or without delay, despite uh, the appearances of the present circumstances of God's people going into exile. The Lord will place his salvation in Zion, among the city of God in the very presence of his people, and for the sake of his people Israel unto his own glory. This righteous salvation is, of course, none other than the child promised for the throne of David, who would also be God himself, as foretold in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. The promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, as the Apostle Paul says. This is a righteous redeemer who gives his people his own righteousness, his own righteous obedience to the law while taking upon himself the wrath that their sin merits. In Christ, we are given the covenant blessings because he has taken the covenant curse upon himself. The Lord God who brings us forth from the womb and has carried us through every season and juncture of life thus far also promises to save those who listen to him. For those who remember and stand firmly upon his promises, as our text says. How then can we not marvel and fear the Lord for such an indescribable gift? And having then apprehended from our passage this evening that we are to fear the Lord with a delightful and marvelous reverence, and wonder at the one who can save as no one else can. We must then subsequently ask, how are we to apply these precious truths, these precious promises to our lives? Our application this evening is simple and it's tied to our big idea, namely to fear the Lord who has made you and has carried you and has promised to save those who listen to him. Again, this is not a fear that is rooted per se in feeling afraid, but rather a profound marveling at the Lord's perfection, his work, 
and his goodness on our behalf. This is a fear that is not roused by our emotions or by how worthy we feel or think ourselves to be, but rather, as our text explains, this fear is rooted and founded upon a right perception of who God is as he has revealed himself in the sacred scriptures. This is a fear that is grasped by the righteous remnant that glories in and listens to the Lord who made them. Those who remember, stand firm, and call these precious truths to mind, as we saw in verses 3 and 8 of our passage. But more practically, listening to him requires that we spend time in his word. The word in which the incomprehensible God who made heaven and earth condescends or stoops down and reveals himself to his people, that we may be in awe of his marvelous works in reconciling us to himself. Uh, we are upon the time of the year when Christians resolve uh, usually to spend more time in the Word, uh, perhaps with a Bible reading plan. Uh, with the greatest of intentions, we often seek to sit down and read the Bible in a year or to read about three chapters a day. But how often do we waver in our own plans and intentions? Uh, so that to say, I would simply encourage all of you this evening to set aside as much time as you can in the Bible. Read a chapter a day or spend 10 to 15 minutes reading God's word and praying, perhaps in the morning. And then you can revisit what you read in the morning over lunch or break or again in the evening to close out your day. And I would encourage you that rather than merely skimming over the chapters in order to check that box on the Bible reading plan for the day, uh, that you would drink deeply from the sacred scriptures, even if it is line by line or paragraph by paragraph each day. Moreover, we need to be praying earnestly that the Lord would open our eyes to the truthfulness of his word, that we may fear and marvel before him. The Lord promises to use these ordinary means of grace to bring and sanctify his people to himself. So if you find yourself burdened by the things of this world, even in your own mind or any other thing that you may set your affections upon, if you're tired and distressed with your burdens and the weightiness of your work, of your relationships, of your life as a whole, I'd encourage you to look upon Christ the Lord by faith. He will never be a burden upon your soul, but rather promises to carry your burdens and he, yet he still says that his yoke is light. Christ is the only one who can bear your burdens. And consequently, uh, the Apostle Peter also exhorts us to cast our cares and our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. The one who carried you forth from the womb will be faithful. He will be faithful to bear your burdens, to carry you through every season trial, and even joy of this life, even of the himself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, this word above all, all earthly powers, Lord. We thank you that uh, you have given us such a, a powerful and yet ordinary means of grace in your word and by means of praying to you, Father. We ask that uh, you would help us to rightly perceive you as you have held yourself forth in your word that we may marvel, that we may fear you, 
that we may look to Christ by faith to alleviate our burdens, to save us from our sins, and all of this unto your glory, your honor, and your praise. In the name of Christ we pray.